Welcome to this podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. As we observe the 100th anniversary of the bloody year 1917, the objective of this podcast is to examine the crisis through the eyes of Henri Bourassa, one of the most influential French-Canadian intellectuals of the last century. With me in the studio is Pierre Anctil, the editor of the 2016 Champlain Society volume entitled Do What You Must, Selected Editorials from Le Devoir under Henri Bourassa, 1910-1932. Pierre Anctil is professor of history at the University of Ottawa. Pierre, welcome again. Thank you. Let's continue this conversation about Henri Bourassa. In our first discussion uh, about him and his views on Confederation, we discussed this awakening in his mind that things were going wrong and that Canada was tearing between two very distinct views of what this country should be about. Now we're seven years later, in 1917, and the Borden government has announced that it will introduce conscription. What is going through Henri Bourassa's mind? Well, every fundamental principle in Bourassa is being violated. This is against his notion of Canadian nationalism, that we should be subservient to Great Britain and, and send our troops and our equipment free of charge, of course, uh, to a battlefield on another continent. It Where Canada ran, has no interest. Has no direct interest. Uh, it ran against the notion also that Canada had to take part in the war of the empire or of empires against empires. And it ran against the notion that the British were telling Canadians what they should do still. At least, you know, we're, we're close to 50 years after the signing of Confederation. And uh, there's still this notion that Britain has the upper hand. And, and that makes... Bourassa, very angry and furious. Uh, he's not, of course, a man of violence, but he will state his principles in this editorial very clearly. It runs against everything that English Can most English Canadians feel about the war. And because it's a war, it's a crisis, and there's hysteria, there's irrationalism, there's a sense of a point where a boiling point is coming in this. It's a moment of, it's a turning point. So let's go to the editorial itself. You've selected an excerpt of Henri Bourassa's famous editorial on the conscription crisis. This was published on June 6, 1917. The Prime Minister obviously intends to impose conscription by a coalition cabinet and by prolonging Parliament once again. This plan reveals an incredible thoughtlessness in the circumstances. The government, the opposition and the entire, entire parliament have plunged the country into the European tempest, whereas no international commitment and no constitutional or moral obligation impose any duty on Canada other than to look after the defense of its own territory. The government decreed this participation in the European war in order to help England and its allies, quote-unquote, destroy militarism, quote-unquote, and save democracy. The entire parliament ratified and acclaimed, quote-unquote, this noble project, 
Sir Robert Borden and his colleagues, and Sir Wilfred Laurier and his supporters, outdid each other in repeating that just as participation was free and voluntary for the nation, it would remain free and voluntary for individuals. It was this promising verbally and in writing not to deviate from the principle of voluntary service that the Prime Minister obtained invaluable support from all sectors of society. By proposing conscription now, Sir Robert Boarding is violating the most solemn promises in the same manner as Bettman Holweg. He is dripping up the scraps of paper that bear his stamp of approval and of the entire parliament. With compulsory overseas service, Canada is being subject to a regime of Prussian militarism. If the Prime Minister persists in refusing to give the people the right to decide the question, he will be violating the fundamental principles of this democracy he wants to save. In Europe, with the blood of 500,000 Canadians. Thank you. There's... Um there's a violence in these words. There's a, there's an anger. There is a sense of betrayal. Yes, definitely. Uh, and there's a sense that it's come to a crisis point. And if he doesn't speak now, it will be too late. And by opposing, he takes a moral high ground. It's worthwhile getting back into the context. So this is early June 1917. Correct. Prime Minister Borden has returned from the front he came back from Britain in May of 1917, and then he announced uh, to his cabinet and to parliament that um, conscription was going to be uh, brought in, that he was going to draft the legislation necessary for that. These are extremely tense moments yes. in the history of our country. Yes. Vimy had just been fought. Uh, lots of lots of deaths, Canadian deaths. Uh, there's a there's a crisis in the sense that English Canada has a certain perception of what is required, and Henri Bourassa steps in. Um, there are at the same time there are riots in Montreal. There are uh, demonstrations across Quebec. The moment is tense. Yes, it is tense, and it's also a moment where Canada is in front of a situation where great sacrifices will have to be made soon. So Vimy was very costly, but the war hadn't been won in Vimy, and it was only a minor battle. Who knew what was to come? And the war was relentless in killing hundreds of people systematically almost every minute. Uh, everyone knew that sacrifices would would be very high. In fact, we we know that this was the war which was most costly for Canada. Um, he's contemplating this, and he knows uh, that, according to his own principles, it's wrong. That regardless of emotions, attachment to Great Britain, regardless of the strategic situation of Great Britain, he feels we have no obligation. And to force Canadians to serve is to actually damage the compact the um, fiber of the uh, Canadian uh, Association, the Canadian Confederation. What do you think was the impact of this editorial? It was enormous. Uh, this is a long editorial, by the way. It's a long, and it's a, it's part of a series. There's, uh, I think, eight to ten. 
uh, long descriptions and long argumentation. In French Canada, Bourassa became instantly a hero for having opposed something which was perceived by the common folk as not necessary. And the opposite took place in English Canada. It was perceived as a traitor, as unloyal, and some people demanded that he be imprisoned. Yeah, some people demanded he be hanged. Hanged, well, of course. <laughs> um, and that the, Le Devoir be suspended. Uh, so he put himself exactly in the middle of the tense place. He rested exactly where Canada had to make a decision, and he told everyone that he disagreed with them almost. Is he being original? I mean, there's there's no doubt that the French Canada is not um, enlisting, um, that the French Canadian men are not enlisting for That's the true. war effort. Um, the the issue here is, I mean, to what degree is Henri Bourassa being original? Is he is he reflecting what his um, his countrymen are thinking, or is he striking out in a new direction? I think it's the forcefulness of his articles and the articulation of ideas. And the courage, uh, he, without hesitation, over a few days, produces a very solid argumentation against conscription plans. Uh, he argues notably that no consultation has been done, that no referendum has been put forward, and that the decision rested exclusively on the prime minister, consulting, of course, the parliament, but not coming to terms with the opposition. Uh, it destroyed Laurier and the Liberal Party. And basically, Laurier remained with his French-Canadian uh, members of parliament. Uh, it later destroyed the influence of the conservatives in French Canada. And um, it, it brought this impact on to bear on the union of French Canadians and English Canadians to form a country. You talked about the forcefulness of his argument. Let's talk a little bit about that. Tell me about his style, uh, Bourassa's editorial style. Well, he was he was a mind within the confines of legalism. He very often, he knew the law and the workings of parliament very well, having been a member of parliament, not then, but uh, for many, many, many years. He had served in Ottawa from 1896 until 1907 and exactly. then served again in the Quebec legislation for, legislature from 1909 until 1915 or 16. And he would come back after. And he'll come back later on. So uh, he knows parliament, yes. He knows parliament. He knows the laws. He knows the tradition. He has all the right arguments. And he's very forceful. And he's very thoughtful. And he's very argumentative. And he's very long. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's very difficult. Uh, once these editorials are launched, uh, it produces a very strong reaction in French Canada. The, the prime minister or the uh, head of the army or whoever writes in English Canada cannot stop. It's too late. It's like uh, the shot's gone. Can you imagine an editorial like that today? Um, uh, how does I, I, want to, I speak to him? I want to speak to him about about, about his way of, of writing, about the editorial no. draft. What makes no. him different from 100 years later? Well, today people go to TV or they use the social media or they go to the blog and there's a flurry of reactions and there's 
you know, systematically voices from all angles. No, in that period, there were few voices because it, they had to be printed and distributed. And um, no radio, no television. No radio, no television. So he channeled a reaction which was, I think, shared largely in French Canada. And he gave that reaction words that were very, very well written. And that the argument was based on, on a form of reflection that was very difficult to oppose. He draws richly on history. On legalism and as on well. Legal, yeah. And his knowledge of British law and his knowledge of Canadian history and his knowledge of even, I would say, the British Empire. Mm. Now, let's get back again to the, the, the context. Um, it's useful to remember that Henri Bourassa had broken with the Liberals in yes. 1911 yes. And during the election and actively campaigned against yes. Wilfrid Dorier. So here he is again. Uh, and this time he's not, he's not – well, what is his position regarding, with, regarding Wilfrid Dorier? What is his position regarding Borden? Is he thinking of, again, doing what he did in 1911, creating a new party? No, I think that uh, would have required a different personality. Uh, Bourassa was not a person to give advantages to his supporters, either money or power or positions. He was not a practical politician at all. In fact, I would argue that he was not a politician at all. He was a man of principle, sitting in a seat, having a seat in parliament and using it to channel and to voice his arguments. Uh, for him to create a political party was impossible, I would argue. But to create a newspaper, a daily, yes, that he could do. And that's what he chose to do. He cho chose to leave the actual day-to-day -day, uh, events of parliament and remove himself and use the ivory tower of his editorials mm -hmm. from which he was unassailable. Because he will not in the end. I mean, he does not. I mean, he does not campaign in favor of Laurier. No. And English Canada will, in fact, say um, the argument will be made that a vote for Laurier is a vote for Bourassa. It becomes incendiary. The 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 politics of the 1917 yeah. election become uh, boiling extremely hot. Extremely emotional. Uh, I would even say irrational. Uh, uh, Bourassa actually um, brings the Laurier government and the Laurier mentality, and he brings Laurier to his end, basically. He destroys uh, the Liberal Party, and he destroys the figure of Laurier uh, for having compromised. You, uh, Laurier was a practical politician. He compromised very often. He did. And that none, none of those compromises found favor in the mind of Bourassa. Okay, so with his... With this editorial, does his, and with the war, does Bourassa's view of confederation change as a result of World no, War I? No, he's still, he's still, uh, yes. He's still favorable to Canada. Don't forget, there's two crises at once. There's the war, and there's the Ontario language oh, crisis. Yes. In 1912, Regulation 17 forbids the use of French in m many, or in many circumstances, in the public schools of Ontario. It's a destruction it's a denial of Bourassa's vision that the wealthiest province and the most populated would not welcome his position of two founding peoples and the equality of French and English and the equality and equal rights and equal treatment for French Canadians. This, this added to the problem uh, furiously and, and it brought the remarks we have that Canada, English Canada was acting like the Germans, 
in oppressing the Alsatians. Those are fighting Poles, words. <laughs> and like the English oppressing the Irish. These are fighting words. I mean, of he's course. comparing Ontario to Prussia. Yes, he is. I mean, that takes some audacity. It did. And not only once, he did this systematically until <laughs> uh, the end of the war crisis. So here he is twice betrayed, betrayed in, in education, betrayed in foreign policy, and yes. yet he still holds to the yes. idea that Canada has a promise. Yes. And he says it clearly, and he says why things are going wrong. Um, for most English Canadians, I would say, for most politicians, for most uh, people in the elite, this was going too far. Uh, he lost most of his friends in English Canada. He became far more isolated after the incident, and it, it sort of wore him down. And mm. he ceases to be publishing editorials at the same rate after 1918. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine that kind of crisis today. Um, Did you, is there any parallel? Do you see any parallel in Canadian history? In the second referendum. In could, 1942? Yes. And again, in the 1995 referendum, there was a moment we could say oh, yeah. when hysteria took over. You're talking about the side. Quebec referendum yes. here. So, yes. so uh, 1980 and 1995. Yes. But it wasn't in a time of war. Right. It wasn't a time of violence. There were no riots. And it wasn't... It wasn't a moment when people felt uh, that threats were from all sides. Um, I don't think you can compare the 20th, uh, late 20th century to the early 20th century. But uh, the sense that um, um, Boisson was alone among Canadians demanding a position which was truly Canadian, he was alone. But he was original. And he wrote in French. I don't think English Canadians often read the French editorials. They read resumes and abstracts and probably a few, a few distorted. Of his texts, a few of his texts were translated. But often distorted or reported mm. in a way mm. which, was, which, which didn't help. Let's talk fast forward. Let's talk about Henri Bourassa today in yes. the memory of, uh, of Quebecois, of um, French Canadians, and also of, of Canada. What, where, what is the memory of Henri Bourassa well, today? Sadly, um, Bourassa is, is a man before the Quad Revolution. And what has become the founding moment of Quebecois nationalism, of Quebecois culture, of Quebecois politics, l'Assemblée nationale, the Quebec parliament, and a sphere of influence or the sphere of responsibility of Quebec, all that developed after Bourassa was dead. He died in 1952. There's no connection. And he's often forgotten uh, his, his Canadian position has been transformed into something else, either a Quebecois for the Francophones or a Federalist or an English Canada. Even English Canada is a notion that is being probably challenged today. Um, it's difficult to imagine that Toronto is the same today as it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So um, the black and white English-French Catholic-Protestant confrontation, the, the bilateral dual confrontation that, that he experienced can no longer be, I think, today in Canada. And yet this is the vision that we celebrate 
on the 150th anniversary, it's very much a vision of a bilingual Canada, of a multicultural Canada. He wouldn't have got, he would not have gotten with the multicultural Canada. No, no, no. That would not have worked for him. This is too recent. (laughs) But, uh, you know, do we have, do we have something to learn from Henri Bourassa? Some historians, Ramsey Cook and others, have argued that, uh, the roots of of the uh, bilingual nature of Canada, uh, the Official Languages Act, uh, the roots of of this notion that Canada is 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 dual, is two languages, two cultures. Those roots are in Bourassa, and I I think there's a fair amount of truth in this that uh, it didn't emerge in English Canada. The first true Canadian nationalists were French Canadians. They had more to lose. They had more to to fear from British imperialism than English Canadians. And that's what makes him relevant today? I think so. He's worth discovering for his style, for the uh, boldness of his views, for the clarity of his thinking. And for the position he took, uh, which which was rarely possible after him, of he himself alone representing French Canada. Final words then on, again, on Bourassa after the war. You say he's he's exhausted by the war effort. Yes, well... And does he retire? What, what's his relationship no, with Le Devoir? And, he and what's, he remains at the helm of Le Devoir until 32. So uh, it's, it's a long period. It's another uh, good 15 years. But... But he's never able to recover that moment of glory and visibility which the war of and the conscription crisis produced, uh, and gradually fades away uh, in French Canada. Um, his vision is superseded to a degree by that of Lionel Grou and the new nationalists. Uh, his subservience to the Catholic Church and his obedience to the Pope and the bishops are becoming criticized because he puts religion before language and culture. And most people after him did the opposite. They put language and culture before faith. Um, and he was, he was not celebrated very much at the end of his life. His last moment of glory was the conscription crisis of 1942. Okay, let's talk about that. What makes him different 20-odd years later, 25 years later? He's much older. He's in his 70s. Uh, He cannot speak forcefully. He has no um, um, place to write like he used to in 1917. He's no longer a journalist. But he's become a symbol of the resistance of French Canadians. And he will support the Bloc Populaire? Yes. Yes. And he will... Be part of their rallies. You see him next to André Laurendeau and uh, others, uh, and uh, but he's much older than them. He really is is the generation that is becoming is fading away. It's sad that he's such a mysterious man. He left no journals. We have some of his correspondence, but it's not very detailed. It's very business correspondence. It's a very sad thing that we don't have more of an intellectual insight into his mind. Well, you know, it's interesting because for people like Bourassa, daily life, ordinary events had no meaning. He wasn't very much... He himself was not interested in himself. He lived for his principles and for his, for how he projected an image of Canada and tried to convince his fellow Canadians and fellow French Canadians. 
he felt that his personal life was of no value or interest to anybody else. It's very little happy domesticity, I guess. Yeah, and he lost his wife uh, in 1918, oh, as there? you know. And oh. she died, and oh. um, I think he had six or seven children in quite a uh, young age. And it was a crisis for him. That was a personal crisis. Oh, I see. And I don't think he recuperated easily from that loss. Thank you, Pierre. Thank you very much for taking the time today. Thank you for this invaluable contribution to the Champlain Society. Again, I want to thank uh, Mr. Tonu Onu, who translated the editorials from English to French. That was Pierre Antille talking about Henri Bourassa's view of conscription in 1917. This excerpt uh, is included in the 2016 Champlain Society volume entitled Do What You Must, Selected Editorials from Le Devoir under Henri Bourassa, 1910-1932. Thank you very much, Pierre. Um, it's, all, it's all pleasures for me. I want to remind our listeners that the uh, editorial that we've just discussed is available on the Champlain Society website. Please visit at www.champlainsociety.ca. This is the Champlain Society podcast. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University. It was produced by Sabrina Birch, Cindy Long, and Vince Piet. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.